The El Conservador Radio Show is sponsored by George Rodriguez on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Time for the El Conservador Radio Show with George Rodriguez. George is a constitutional conservative who loves to expose fake news and liberals. Be a part of the show. Call 210-308-8867. And now, El Conservador, George Rodriguez. Howdy, howdy, howdy once again, my friends. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas on KLUP 930 AM radio. The answer. Welcome to the show, folks. We've got a packed one as usual today. Um, we've got uh, a lot to talk about. Lots been happening both uh, on the uh, border front as well as uh, in uh, just the news of our communities in general. Uh, all of it uh, related to uh, COVID-19 and um, just how the heck are we going to continue to maintain a civil sane society because i mean I, I i think that some of us are losing well some people are losing their mind i really do uh we've got a great lineup first of all uh our first guest is going to be mr paul crespo he's new uh i'm lucky that i got him on the show paul is a national security leader uh na former naval attache and uh u.s uh marine corps officer uh, seems like we get a lot of marines <laughs> on our show <laughs> which is great which is great uh, at any rate, um, he's based out of Washington, D.C., and he is a CEO of a, uh, of a, of a group called Spectra uh, that provides global risk and strategy advisory. And uh, I got him on because I wanted him to tell us and talk to us about uh, the issue of this uh, China virus. Yes, that's what I call it, the China virus. And uh, let's uh, get some real perspective as to uh, a global perspective uh, of this uh, virus. So I'm really, really happy that we've got uh, Paul on the show. We've also got Ed Bartlett, who is president of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Uh, he is going to talk to us about the uh, fake statistics on domestic violence. Now, here in San Antonio and on uh, national news, there have been a lot of talk about how people that are cooped up, that are uh, in quarantine right now, that are you know, uh, self-distancing, uh, as we're calling it, uh, they uh, are all, uh, a lot of folks are uh, going stir-crazy, and there's uh, an uptick in domestic violence. Well, uh, he does, but he, he agrees that there is to a certain extent, but he also says that the statistics are being played with, that uh, they are playing, being played with to favor uh, the uh, leftist agenda, the uh, anti-male uh, agenda, and uh, they uh, are being played with. So uh, he's going to give us an update on what uh, the, the statistics are truly like uh, about uh, domestic violence that's going on right now. Finally, we've got uh, the national president of the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, he's a new guest as well, Patrick Yost. And Patrick is um, uh, Officer Yost. Uh, is going to be chatting with us about uh, the impact of the COVID-19 uh, uh, epidemic, this pandemic, on police officers. Uh, we are seeing it more and more across the country. And uh, with that, let's jump into the news because that's a good bridge to uh, to go to because um, I don't know if, I, you know, how many of you have been kept keeping up. But here in San Antonio, we've got um, uh, at least uh, three uh police officers and three employees of the Bear County Sheriff's Department that have tested positive for the uh, for the virus and um, an additional 15 police officers are waiting for uh, for test results uh, at least 23 uh, police employees including 17 17 officers and six civilians uh, have uh, gone into self-isolation now this is the problem my friends as this virus uh, spreads and uh, the concern, uh, both real and uh, hysterical, uh, I'll put it in those terms, as it spreads, my friends, it is hitting the first responders. Uh, we've seen how it hits, uh, how, how uh, some of the uh, 
uh, Border Patrol folks are already starting to to feel the impact. Now, imagine, my friends, imagine if all of these uh, folks, if these first responders, imagine if they, imagine if they go into uh, self isolation, uh, into uh, if they go into self quarantine. What are we going to do? I mean, we can't. I mean, these are police officers. These are border patrol agents. These, this is the military. These, these are the firefighters, the EMS. Uh, these are the folks that, if there is any any need for a service, a public service, it is them. It is them that we need in order to uh, preserve our nation, in order to uh, preserve uh, law and order in order to protect us. And imagine if these folks start going into, uh, start getting sick and going into uh, self-isolation. It is very critical, my friends, that we understand, that we understand that we need the, this is the uh, government service that needs to be taken care of. This is the one that should take priority over, oh, let's say moving the cenotaph here in San Antonio, let's say over, uh, let's say over funding, uh, uh, legal services for illegal aliens. Let's let's say that. Let's say that. So uh, you know, it, it is uh, it, it is very very daunting and real that uh, this situation is going on. We also have um, you know the the um, uh, officer Yost for president uh, president Yost, the, the president of the National uh, Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, will talk to us a little bit about uh, the situation, the uh, statistics that they released this past week that talks about um, at least 21 officers nationwide have died as a result of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, they are considered in the line of duty because they contracted the, uh, the disease uh, while doing their job, while doing their job. So, my friends... This is is a very, very real situation that we are facing. This is not hype uh, or scare tactics. This is something very, very real. So uh, let's uh, transition now over to the news because it is uh, this COVID uh, pandemic is uh, is really playing. Uh, some people are using it to play games Political games, for example, here in South Texas, here in South Texas, it's been reported that this organization called the Pro Bono Project, uh, it is a uh, it represents uh, women and children uh, who are uh, in detention for uh, who are seeking asylum and are in detention. Well, their uh, their president, uh, Shalon uh, Flurity, their director, uh, has uh, is demanding filed a lawsuit and is demanding that uh, these uh, illegal aliens that are in detention, that they be uh, that they be released immediately because of the COVID-19 health concerns that are in uh, in in the detention. Now, again, my friends, we are all busy self quarantining ourselves. We are busy shut up and shut down and they want to release these people who broke the law. Uh, where is the uh, where is that logic? Where is that logic come from? I mean, I, I you know, it, it, the extreme uh, irony here is that we are shut up, and they are being they're, they're trying to release these people. It's ironic, my friend. It's ironic that they don't demand uh, that these folks are uh, released back into their home country. If they're going to be released, release them back into their home country. Why not do that? It it, it is very very disturbing that that too. Also, a second police, uh, a second Border Patrol officer uh, in the El Paso sector um, has tested positive for the covid virus. Uh, This is uh, again, this is while these leftists are demanding the release of illegal aliens. The agents are risking their lives at the at at the uh, border, uh, stopping these illicit uh, border crossers that uh, are carrying heaven knows what kind of disease. Let's face it, because uh, the the fact of the matter is that in the past, uh, remember when the kids were coming across, they were the kids were infecting the poli- the uh, border patrol officers with mumps, measles, and heaven knows what else, you know. And uh, this, you know, again, nobody was screaming and yelling about uh, about uh, quarantining those kids. Uh, nobody was screaming and yelling about the uh, the the health and safety of the uh, of the border patrol. Um, 
Additionally, we've got uh, we've got a, um, a another news item here. This is very very interesting. Uh, a narco zoo that was uh, closed up in uh, in here in South Texas. Uh, the Border Patrol and uh, the state uh, officials confiscated exotic animals, including a tiger, uh, at a uh, at a private zoo that was run by dr- drug lords. Uh, incredible, incredible what these characters, what these drug lords are uh, capable of. Uh, there was also a shootout last week. Uh, the cartels fighting for control. Another shootout in uh, Nuevo Laredo. Uh, it was uh, the gunfight um, took place after the killing of uh, of Hugo Alejandro uh, Salcido Cisneros, uh, who is one of the uh, high ranking cartel leaders, the cartel del est del, del noroeste uh, leaders. Uh, amazing. I mean, these things go on a regular. These kind of shootings go on on a regular basis. My friends, it, these are trying times. These are very, very trying times, and we need to be strong. Uh, I would t- I, I'll tell you, my friends, I would prefer to live by hope and faith. Yes, hope, hope, hope in the future, faith that uh, things are going to turn out, rather than to live in uh, fear and doubt uh, like uh, the news media, like the leftists, like the liberals seem to want us to do. I mean, everything that comes out of their mouth is regarding fear and doubt. Everything the president says, every action that, the, that uh, he takes, it's all about fear and doubt. And, uh, you know, fear and doubt is a terrible motivator. Fear and doubt is a terrible motivator. My friends, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you again for joining us. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas. Stay tuned. Let's go. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then we'll be right back with our first guest. Hello, El Conservador listeners. If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez, El Conservador, and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you're interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer here in San Antonio. And we've got uh, a new guest with us, and uh, hopefully uh, we can get him back on on a regular basis, because I'm very, very impressed with this gentleman, Mr. Paul Crespo, who's talking to us all the way from Washington, D.C. He's a national security leader, uh, former naval attache officer. Uh, and he's CEO of uh, and founder of an organization called Spectre. Now that sounds uh, Spectra. That sounds kind of uh, uh, James Bondish, <laughs> James Bondish. Uh, and uh, he's got uh, a ton of in, a, a ton of background in geopolitics, intelligence, and national security policy. So I reached out to Paul because. Uh, I wanted to ask him about China's role and China's responsibility in this whole COVID-19 issue. Uh, we uh, hear a lot, especially on, on social media. Oh, my gosh, social media is, is really full of all sorts of rumors and speculations and uh, comments. And I wanted to, to uh, chat with somebody who's, uh, who's a, a, a national security uh, uh, officer or n- knowledgeable of it, as well as intelligence and diplomacy and what I, I just wanted to get his uh, take on this situation. So, Paul, thank you for for taking time to be with us on our show. Uh, welcome. And um, what do you think? I mean, is China responsible for it? And and what do you think? In what way? If so. Uh, well, George, 
Rich. Uh, thank you for, for bringing me on. And uh, it's, it, the company is called Spectre Global Risk, and uh, Spectre actually means uh, ghost, so uh, uh, or uh, phantom. So that's that, that's sort of where the name came from. Um, and uh, I have to preface this by saying that I'm not at, uh, working for the government at this time. So these are just my opinions. And uh, basically, I want to say that I've been writing about this and talking about this for quite a while. Um, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, um, it, it should definitely be held responsible for the what I call the Wuhan coronavirus uh, COVID-19 um, uh, epidemic because it uh, definitely started in Wuhan, China. Um, and uh, the negligence and incompetence and uh, even the nature of the, repre- the, the repressive nature of the regime um, allowed it to spread and become a global pandemic. So regardless of how we get into more details about other possible links to, to China and their um, and, and, and how it may have originated, regardless of that, what I've just said is absolutely factual and pretty much um, should be taken for, 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 for fact because they're, they're, they knew that this uh, uh, outbreak happened in probably November. Um, they covered it up. They repressed the doctors who tried to out, out it and, and publicly state it. The, several of those doctors died. Um, they, they have an incredible amount of misinformation coming out and censorship that kept it secret, and that affected how other countries saw this and, and prepared or did not prepare enough for it based on what they was the information that they was coming out of China. So China's role in, in allowing this, in being the origin of this outbreak is undisputed, and allowing it to expand and become a global pandemic uh, is also pretty much undisputed. So it, they are they should be held responsible regardless. Uh, that's the, the that's the, the first thing I, should, I you know I want to make sure it's clear. The uh, and, and in holding them responsible, uh, do you think this was? Uh, I mean, it, obviously their their cover up was intentional. I mean, you know the the communists never do anything wrong, of course. But uh, you know, in in uh, was it? Do you think it was a product of biological warfare or, or a lab, or do you think it's just, you know, their the 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 dirtiness of the uh, of the unsanitary conditions in their uh, in in their uh, markets and uh, their hygiene and whatnot? Well, you know, their first claim, and again, it's still under, unproven and, and and has not had. There's no evidence to show that that's actually correct, but it's been speculation that it occurred in this, this wet market where they have these, you know, seafood and, and wild animals being sold because the certain percentage of the population likes to eat uh, exotic wild animals that uh, could be infected with all sorts of strange diseases, and they eat them, you know, as fresh as possible, so they have them alive until the last possible minute. So <clears throat> that was their speculation. That could be a factor. That could be the origin. Uh, we don't know. But the coincidence is, and, and, and the, the, the issue that I brought up in a few articles and, and uh, um, things that I've posted and written about is that there is a, a very high-level uh, biosafety lab in Wuhan, uh, which is one of the highest, well, it is the highest level. It's, it's called a biosafety lab level four, BSL four. Um, there's only one in China at the moment. They're planning on building and they're building already a few more, but that is the highest level containment bio research laboratory that exists. And, uh, the level four is the highest that exists. There are some of those labs in other countries. They're used to, uh, study and research um, the most contagious, the most dangerous pathogens and, and viruses and diseases in the world, um, and, and very strict protocols. Now, they have one of those labs, coincidentally, about 20 miles from where they say the, 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 <laughs> the virus originated. So there has been a lot of speculation, and, uh, and, I, and I, you know, I'm not arguing that it was or it wasn't, but I'm saying there, wasn't, there needs to be a lot more transparency from the Chinese government to understand, if at all possible, this virus could have um, come from that lab intentionally or unintentionally, you know, more likely unintentionally through, you know, uh, bad protocols, through uh, an infected worker or through a worker who took one of the lab animals out of there and sold it because there have been cases, documented cases of these laboratories in the past, maybe not this, this particular one, but other lower level ones like BSL-3 labs, that have uh, people have been caught trying to sell their lab animals who have obviously infected. Oh my or that one of the lab animals infected a worker and the worker walked out and then wow. spread it some other way. Incredible. And, and that, that is very possible. Uh, I'm not speculating that it is. I, I don't want a conspiracy theory coming out of this saying that, it, that I said that, because I'm not. But that is the question that people are asking. And, and because of the lack of transparency and because 
China does have a history of leaks before. They have had bio lab leaks, confirmed ones, of SARS and other uh, 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 you know, highly contagious agents in the past. And as a matter of fact, the president of China, uh, Xi Jinping, actually made a, a statement in January, I believe, uh, that uh, at an emergency meeting that they had to clamp down and, and, and the biosecurity, uh, lab security was very, you know, pressing need. And shortly thereafter, the, the government started initi- uh, publishing new new regulations on biolab security. So that made it suspicious. Now, it could be just sort of, you know, hey, we're being careful for the future, but it also could be that they're realizing that they had a, they had a leak of some sort. So there is some speculation. It is possible. I, I a lot of other scientists say, no, this virus was, that was not engineered. It couldn't have come from a lab, uh, you know, but I, I don't think there's enough evidence or enough uh, uh, study of the matter uh, to, to conclude one way or the other, especially since the Chinese government refuses to provide accurate information. Right. The bottom line is that it's here and we've got to deal with it. Um, what uh, What do you see as as the future uh, of our relationship? How should, what do you think, what would you recommend uh, if you were sitting next to the president, what do you recommend? What do you think the future of our relationship be with China? Well, the first thing, and the reason we talk about this, and yes, we do have to combat this disease now. We have to defeat it, and, 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 and we also have to learn from all the mistakes we're making and all the things we're doing right to prepare for the future in case there's another type of epidemic like this or a worse one. Um, but we also have to keep holding China accountable because they are now turning the narrative around and trying to provide a, to create a disinformation campaign, a propaganda campaign that makes them immune or you know ignores their culpability in all this and actually flips it around and turns them into the hero of the story where they're all out there, you know, they conquered this and now they're, they're saving the world by sending masks and whatnot. So we're in the middle of an information war a propaganda war where the Chinese want to make themselves the heroes and us the, 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 the enemies or at least the incompetent groups and we need to, to fight that because we are fighting for a future of you know what system is going to, is going to be the dominant system in the world a Chinese communist uh, authoritarian repressive regime as a model for the world or America's democratic republic uh, type system for the world and, and, and that is actually what's going to be the biggest conflict over the next 50 years is who's going to be in charge and what model is going to be the model of the future so I think it's calling it a battle between democracy and dictatorship is not overstating it. So that has to be clear. And, and in that, in that the, the president, I think, has done a good job and we're, we're hopefully will continue to do, to decouple as much as possible from China. I think American companies should leave China. I think production should be moved to, uh, elsewhere. I, I think the, the dependency we've had on their vaccines and medicines that we allowed ourselves to become dependent on uh, needs to be reversed so that the United States and all the Western countries can be more independent of the Chinese influence or, or Chinese dependency economically and in other ways. Um, and we also go into the cyber and espionage, which is one of the biggest threats that they pose as well. They've been stealing our, our technology and our, our, our most valuable assets, you know, stealing us blind for the last 30 years, and that has to stop. Do you think that we should uh, curtail or at least limit uh, the number of uh, Chinese students and Chinese uh, professors that are coming across? Absolutely. You know, some some Chinese students are, of course, you know, innocent, simply want to travel and study. However, regardless of, of what their personal intentions are, they are all controlled one way or another by the Chinese a police state. They, their families are held hostage, so to speak. They are uh, th- threatened, bullied, coerced into providing information, uh, and some of them are outright uh, intelligence assets. So no matter what, almost I would argue almost every Chinese national in the United States uh, that's a Chinese citizen visiting here uh, is potentially compromised, especially when they're at uh, universities or research institutions or labs or um, any any kind of scientific research, technological research, or even in companies that are operating uh, in conjunction with American companies, their number one mission uh, is to steal our te- our technology and you, our our uh, information. You wow, that's that, that's really really a, a sobering. And, I, and it's not just me saying it. You know, FBI counterintelligence, senior people in the, in the, in the intelligence community and and law enforcement have to you know. Yep. Uh, about this over the last year or so, so you know, more or longer, it's it's a, it's a real actual threat. Paul, uh, tell the folks here at the clo- conclusion 
how they can read uh, more about uh, the stuff that you write, your articles, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in, uh, in, in, so, that, so that we can all stay more informed. Well, at the moment, I'm actually a contributor to something called AmericanActionNews.com, AmericanActionNews.com, uh, under the Foreign Affairs, Military, Government sections. Uh, I, I uh, post an article every day, one a day. Um, I will soon have another uh, website, I hope, uh, by the end of this month, called American Defense News, which will be purely my uh, views on, on, on defense and national security stuff. So those are uh, two places, but right now only American Action News is covering it. Um, I, I also work with an organization called Free Pressers, uh, dot, uh, com and uh, Free Pressers is uh, another news site that provides uh, uh, sort of news and information that uh, the mainstream media doesn't cover as, 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 as much as we would like or in the way we would like. So uh, Free Press International and FreePressers.com is another source you can uh, get my information from. Thank you very much for being with us, Paul. We've been talking with Paul Crespo, uh, founder and CEO of Spectra Global Risk and uh, from Washington, D.C., and we'll be sure to get you back on again. Paul, thank you very much. Oh, good. Thank you. Howdy, howdy, howdy once again, my friends. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer. And uh, we've got... Uh, a new guest with us, Mr. Edward Bartlett, who is president of the Coalition to End Domestic Violence. Uh, and uh, he's the national president. I wanted to get him in because we had a very strange and sad situation here in uh, San Antonio uh, this past week. Uh, we had a situation, well, uh, and I, I would imagine that it's due to we all being cooped up uh, as uh, as we are, uh, we had a situation, a sad situation, where a uh, young man uh, who had a um, a history of mental illness apparently um, uh, had a breakdown and uh, attacked and shot his mother, his sister, and an infant, uh, all living in the home. And uh, whether or not this is directly uh, related to uh, all of us being uh, sheltered in place, so to speak, isolated. Uh, it is uh, part of the uh, ongoing problem of domestic violence that we see, and uh, it's uh, it. Uh, there's a lot of folks who are thinking that it's uh, become a, going to become a lot more prevalent uh, during this period uh, than it has before, and uh, including some of our police buddies who have uh, been on the show last week. So uh, I wanted to reach out to um, Mr. Bartlett, Edward Bartlett, and ask him uh, to please give us some uh, some thoughts about uh, this uh, this situation, the extreme dangers and the risks uh, that that we have right now, uh, whether or not they're real or not, uh, from the perspective of the uh, domestic violence, uh, uh, the the coalition to end domestic violence. Ed, thank you for being with us. Welcome to the show. Talk to us. What uh, What is it that you see regarding this situation right now? Well, George, it's good to be on your on your show. And you're right. There have been media reports um, on this issue in the last two three weeks. Um, they've been most mostly filled with conjectures. You know, sort of make believe scenarios. I have honestly seen. Very, very few actual police reports of actual incidents. Um, We know that the domestic violence industry um, often resorts to promoting unwarranted fear. They resort to exaggerated statistics, sometimes outright false statistics, in order to promote an agenda of fear. So... Knowing that this has been true in the past, we decided to check into this claim that, uh, you know, as a result of the coronavirus threat, people would be, you know, in the uh, shelter-in-place policies at home. Was this really true that it would result in a spike of domestic violence? Um, 
So we actually <clears throat> telephoned. We, we called uh, 11 police departments all around the country. I can tell you their names if, if you want to know. One of them was in Houston. Um, and <clears throat> we just asked them very the straightforward question since March 15th, has your office been seeing an increase, no change, or a decrease in the number of domestic violence calls? What we got, the answer we got from these departments surprised us, and this is what they told us. So we called 11 units, six reported an actual decrease in the number of domestic violence calls, four of them said there was no change, and for reasons we don't understand, Houston did report a slight increase of 10%. But again, the vast majority of these places said there was a decrease or no change. So does this sound to you like another example of fake news? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Certainly does, sensationalism. So why do you think that is? I mean, what uh, what do you attribute this to? Well, uh, you know, bless their hearts, the domestic violence industry is always looking for ways to increase government funding. Ah, yes. And, and, and you may have heard about this recent coronavirus coronavirus package of two trillion dollars well sure enough the domestic violence people were uh they wanted an extra uh 300 million dollars to address uh you know these claims of yeah we're going to see a spike of demand uh they did get something like 40 million instead of 300 million but reality is they're always looking for ways to to, to line their pockets with more funding. Uh, unfortunately, they use this fund for often for political activism, not to help victims of domestic violence. So um, there's a lot to be told about what's, what is the real story behind domestic violence. That's, a, that's very, very interesting. And, and I agree completely and totally because we have seen a spike in the uh, amount of... Uh, of uh, media play regarding uh, the poverty industry and that's what i'll call that 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 aspect of it the poverty industry how everybody's hungry how everybody needs more food stamps how everybody you know but everybody but but it seems like these uh these organizations want the money so that they can funnel it to the people instead of saying well let's just give the money directly to people <laughs> i never i never hear that so uh, uh what is what is your perspective uh, on this on this issue to refute these claims, I mean, what is uh, what what do you see from your from from uh, your organizational's point of view? Well, so I'll, I'll actually tell you about another conversation I had just uh, uh, just a few days ago. I was speaking to the director of an abuse shelter in Miami, Florida, and I asked her again these, the same question we asked the police departments, and she told me that her abuse shelter had seen no change in the number of calls uh, following the coronavirus issues. And I asked her why. She said, well, because very few people who are victims of domestic violence want to go into a shelter where crowded with other people who may have coronavirus, which made a lot of sense to me. So, um, you know, truth be told, there's a lot of fear mongering. There's a lot of conjecture, but, you know, we would like people to look at the facts before they start, you know, going into a, a, a circle of panic about, oh, well, domestic violence is going to spike uh, as a result of coronavirus. Yeah, they. I mean, it, it really, really uh, has been a very, very uh, dramatic message that is being, that has been Put out, and you're right. I mean, there are a lot of assumptions. I mean, everybody that I've spoken to, uh, both in law enforcement and uh, in uh, in the social services, uh, are making the assumption, and that's what it is. It's an assumption that things are going to get worse because they are cooped, because people are cooped up, uh, and and uh, it's very interesting that you're finding the complete opposite. Right. In fact, we actually um, had communications with the police department in Boston, Massachusetts, and the, the police officer we talked to was very emphatic. He said, no, 
the rate of domestic violence has gone down in Boston. And he was saying because people are <clears throat> aren't truly focused on survival. You know, they're focused on food, uh, feeding the family, uh, the next paycheck. Uh, they don't have time to, 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 you know, indulge in domestic violence. So I'm just telling you, we are not getting this, these dire reports when we talk to the police. Wow, that's amazing. I, I am, I'm just fascinated by, this, uh, by, your, by your comments. I, I really am, because I would imagine that there would be a lot of folks who would want to uh, uh, counter that, who would, who would uh, be upset beyond belief to hear, hear what you said, which is not unusual on our show. Uh, we have a lot of folks, we have a lot of, uh, uh, should we call them liberals, that, that just freak out whenever they hear anything uh, that they don't like on our show. Uh, so, uh, I understand that there's a bill that's being, uh, up, that's up for authorization. Tell us about that. Oh yeah. Well, this is the, um, it's a, a federal bill. It's called the violence against women act, also known as BAWA. Um, this law has actually been around since, uh, 1994. Um, our good friend, uh, Joe Biden, was the champion for this law back in the, in the 1990s. Um, the Violence Against Women Act has a very good, very innocent-sounding name. But, uh, you know, if, if you care about things like uh, due process, if you care about the presumption of innocence, if you care about protecting families, no. <laughs> it, it actually undermines these these uh, key facts, but I'll tell you what is even more shocking, uh, and this comes from the Centers for Disease Control. This is the federal office that tracks, you know, epidemics and so forth. Um, they also they, they have a survey that tracks the number of domestic violence incidents every year. And guess what? According to the CDC, male, male victims vastly outnumber female victims, and I'll give you the number, 3.2 million male victims compared to 2.5 million female victims every year. Wow. So why are we calling this the Violence Against Women Act? Shouldn't we call it, you know, use a more inclusive name? Right, right. I mean, it would seem that way, but uh, again, I would imagine that, again, uh, liberals, in order to promote an agenda are using that uh, that name, just like they they call all uh, migrants, uh, everybody that that enters the United States legally and illegally migrants. They're just saying, you know, they don't they don't want to differentiate uh, for political purposes. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, so uh, so Ed, tell the folks how they can follow you, how they can uh, contribute, uh, how they can uh, support your organization. Yeah, I'd be glad to, George. So, um, so my organization against the Coalition to End Domestic Violence. We're a national group. We take a science-based and a, a, a factual-based approach to end domestic violence. Um, we're not driven by ideology. We're not driven by a narrative. Uh, so we do have a website. It's www. End to as in T-O-D-V.org, and I'll say it again, end2dv.org. So we have lots of information at uh, end2dv.org on the Violence Against Women Act and on domestic violence in general and how we can make this an issue. It's a real issue. Nobody's claiming that it doesn't. it's not a problem. But the real problem is very different from what the <clears throat> activists are claiming. Right. It's be, they're using it for political purposes rather than to actually address the problem. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Ed, thank you very, very much for being with us. Once again, we've been talking with Mr. Ed Bartlett. Uh, with uh, He's president of the Coalition to End Domestic Violence out of Rockville, Maryland. Thank you for being with us, Ed. Once again, George Rodriguez, El Conservador on KLUP. 9.30 a.m. radio, The Answer. Hello, El Conservador listeners. 
If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez, El Conservador, and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you're interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer here in San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas. And uh, we've got uh, a special guest, a new guest, uh, Mr. Patrick Yost, Officer Patrick Yost, who is the national president of the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, This is is, uh, probably the largest police officers association in the nation. And we're very, very uh, happy to have him on the radio because uh, I wanted to talk to him about the impact of the uh, COVD, of the COVID virus uh, crisis that we're looking at, the impact that it's having on our police officers. Uh, Obviously, we need police officers like we need the military and we need the Border Patrol. This is an essential and very critical uh, function of government, and yet uh, these folks uh, are in danger, and they are uh, thousands are getting infected, and some are dying. So uh, we wanted to talk to the uh, to uh, Officer Yost, the pres- President Yost, and ask him what uh, what his organization is seeing. What uh, do you uh, think will happen? Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Patrick, I, I really, I really, really thank you for coming on the show. Tell us what uh, what are you guys seeing? What are you? Uh, what is your organization uh, finding regarding this whole situation with COVID? Well, well, first let me let me let me just say that these are these are unprecedented times for us. I mean, we're dealing with something that no one has ever dealt with before, and we're trying to find ways to to, to make uh, to, to provide public safety to. to Americans all across. I mean, we're all we're all figuring this out as we move on. So, to that respect, uh, I, I say that we're all in this together. Uh, every one of us has a part to play in uh, in, in this COVID nineteen crisis, and uh, and we all need to play our part. When it comes to public safety, I, I think we have a very unique uh, problem we have here. Uh, resources are coming. Uh, from Washington, they, they're distributed to states. The states distribute out these resources to the places where they feel the priority is. That's how our system works. So as those, this, these products are coming out, these these personal protection equipment, it's for the most part is being sent out to uh, medical uh, locations, hospitals, medical care workers. And, and look, we, we won't want to argue the fact that they don't have a, a real need for that equipment. But what I will ask you to do is consider this. We have law enforcement officers, roughly about 800,000 across this country who go work every day, and they're going to work in an environment where they know that everyone else has been told to stay away from others so that they will not spread the virus. Officers are going to work every single day and don't have the luxury of having social distancing. What they have to do is they have to provide public safety and coming in contact with some of the very people that are ending up at these medical facilities. And they're doing so without any consistency or a great uh, deal of personal protection equipment. So with that, with that, it's not in our DNA to not represent our communities. Our officers are going to work every single day, and they're doing this. And what they're doing is they're placing themselves, and they're placing their family at a higher risk than the average population. That that needs to be recognized. Uh, tell us, is there any kind of of uniformed uh, uh, policy or any type of uniformed guidance that's being given to the police department? Never mind uh, uh, some type of equipment as well. Well, I think so. 
so so let me break that down into two categories for you. Um, first, law enforcement officers are resourceful. Law enforcement agencies, where it is our job to respond to crisis situations and find ways to be able to to mitigate whatever exposure there is, uh, whatever. So our law enforcement officers are really getting creative. There's a, there may be a lack of PPEs that are coming down, but that hasn't stopped agencies across this country of finding ways in order to be able to provide uh, personal protection equipment to, to the members from creating their own um, hand sanitizers to trying to trying to acquire vests, uh, 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 ventilators, uh, uh, masks, all of these things, you know, law enforcement agencies are doing their part. Uh, but what would, would be really helpful, and I know that we're working with the Department of Homeland Security and had some discussions on it, and I know it's being drafted, and I expect it to be out soon. What we don't have is some kind of standard for people to follow. Uh, you go to one agency, and they may have a very robust uh, policy and practice and to protect their officers and make sure that their staffing levels are adequate and that they're not exposing everyone to it. And then you go to another agency and you may have absolutely no consideration for any of that. So we've asked the Department of Homeland Security to draft a best practices policy for agencies to adopt that tells them how to do testing of officers that have been exposed. Uh, it gives them guidance on how to do that testing and how agencies should go about doing the quarantine after people after our, our, our law enforcement officers know that they've come in contact with someone that possibly may have COVID-19 do we send them home to their families and do we have a process in place to be able to take them out of the work pools that are going to infect other officers all of these things we need some guidance from and uh, working with the Department of Homeland Security I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, sometime today you may see that uh, that policy or uh, that best practices policy come down and offer some guidance for agencies on how they should handle this you know it really worries me uh, officer Yost, uh, how this uh, this situation uh, is impacting uh, the police officers because it would appear to me that they're already morale problems because of the disrespect that we constantly see towards law enforcement, towards the police officers. Uh, and now they uh, are having to, uh, uh, to watch uh, some uh, communities release prisoners. They call them low-risk prisoners uh, who, uh, you know, you've got the, the ridiculousness of the uh, mayor of, uh, of, of uh, Houston telling uh, criminals that uh, they they need to take a holiday from crime uh, during this. I, I mean, so, there there just seems to be some insanity going on. How do the police officers? Uh, how how do they hold up under the, under these conditions? Well, you know, you, you bring up a, a very good point. There are a lot of aspects I think we need to, to add into to, to the statement that you just made. First off, we need to recognize that we have a whole lot of correctional officers across this country that are dealing with a, a closed environment. And again, they, too, don't have the ability to have social distancing. So all of that is very much uh, a concern. Uh, the, the, but I think the bigger concern, there's two two factors here. One is is that I, I fail to see how releasing criminals onto the streets at a time of a crisis is somehow going to make anybody or anything any safer. Uh, so I think there needs to be a logical approach to what we're doing here. I'm not saying that uh, that an assessment doesn't make sense, but I think that assessment needs to, to very much uh, consider the fact that there's a reason why these people were in, in jail to start with. Yeah, I mean, if, so, if, so, so, but let, let me let me post another another concern to you, and that is, let's talk about strategic versus, um, uh, you know, if the strategic approach is is that you take all of these, uh, um, all of these assets and you put them in a place to where uh, it makes some sense. Um, now, well, I've, the tactical. Uh, tactical, you take all of these personal protection equipment, you put them in a place where they make the most sense. In this case, it's going to be in the medical facilities. Let's talk about the strategic part of it. What happens in America when we start seeing our law enforcement staffing levels drop to such a point because they're either exposed to, they're either tested positive for COVID or they've been put in quarantine because they've come in contact with it. And now all of a sudden, have such a, a, a low presence in law enforcement across this country. And we already know from disaster after disaster are a segment of our population that love to take advantage of crisis situations. We're going, we could be looking at a second, uh, a second crisis coming down, and that is the inability for public safety and for law enforcement to be able to staffing level in order to properly, properly protect our, our communities. That's right. I mean, you know, the staffing levels 
in small communities. I was just reading the, this morning where um, the the small community of Albany, Georgia, has nine officers that have been infected and two of them have been hospitalized. If small communities start uh, uh, start suffering, uh, you know that places like Atlanta are going to start suffering eventually as well, not to mention other other large communities. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, it's just something that needs to be given uh, serious consideration to. Another thing that I think is, is very, very much uh, an important issue, and I know the state of Texas is weighing into this as well, uh, and we're trying to encourage other states to do it as well. You know, our law enforcement officers get up every day and they don't go to work. They don't have the luxury of saying, you know, it's just dangerous and I'm not going to go to work. Uh, that is not our, our line of businesses has a certain amount of danger associated with it. But it doesn't mean that we blindly should have to do things without proper protection. So I will I will argue with you that uh, if you're going to ask law enforcement officers to go out on a job and put themselves and their families in this type of setting, there should be a presumptive recognition by our government that if they are coming to work and putting themselves in that position, that presumption should be that they, if they are diagnosed uh, COVID-19, that there should be a presumption that they got it while they were working on duty. They should not have to prove uh, that uh, they got it from, from coming to work if they're being forced to come to work and not have the proper equipment to protect themselves. Okay. Uh, so that's, uh, we, we are trying to encourage governors across the country rule on a state level. We're working with the federal government in order to be able to identify that as a, a major concern for federal employees and also police officers survivor benefits as well. There's a lot of factors that involve in this. It's not much different uh, in terms of 9-11. If you think about it, it took uh, it wasn't until last year they finally settled up and, and recognized the done to people from non-officer, first responders from 9-11. So we should not have to go you know, all this time trying to, to recognize that officers put themselves in harm's way to protection of the community, that they're going to, to, to put their put their safety before um, the protection of their communities and that our government should recognize that they're doing so and recognize that if they do, 19, that there should be a presumption that it happened while they were working. That's exactly right. I mean, I couldn't agree more. We've been talking with, uh, with uh, President uh, of the uh, national, the national president of the federal of the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, Officer Patrick Yos, and uh, all, all I can tell you uh, is that I have the utmost respect for the police officers, and I hope and pray heaven keeps them safe. Uh, thank you very much for being here.